Thank you, Pastor Andrew and worship team. Oh, I love that, that new song on our Savior. That's beautiful. And of course, that last one, Jesus Christ, our living hope. Amen, which has so much to do with our message this morning as we'll be continuing in our share uh, series of messages this morning, sharing our hope, sharing our hope. It is my privilege and honor to bring the word uh, this morning for all of our sake, and I am grateful for the opportunity. Uh, My prayer has been that God would, as Pastor Andrew prayed, focus our hearts and minds upon the Lord Jesus Christ rather than the circumstances of our lives. Because the circumstances don't always look too good, do they? If we're living for the circumstance that is pleasing to us, we will be unhappy most of the time. But by the grace of God, when we fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, he gives us a different perspective. And that's what this message is all about this morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We're going to be doing a quick uh, I guess, overview of a portion of chapter 7 and through chapter 8. I recognize uh, how daunting a task that is, and I will endeavor to to be concise about it. (laughs) All right. Romans chapter 7. I suspect that many of you come in here this morning feeling the same way that I do in a lot of ways. Um, I have been deeply tempted and tried uh, in the last year and a half to two years with a growing battle against hopelessness. Uh, It shames me to say that, but to not say it would not be helpful to you or to me. Uh, there are times when I wonder whether I can stand against the flood tide of a culture that has sought to make good evil and evil good. And one of the descriptions that I have heard over and over about our culture today is that it is a world turned upside down. And for those of us who have been trained in the word of God, even a little bit, as we grow and mature in our perception of God's truth, we, be, we begin to see more clearly on a continuous basis how upside down the world really is. Other people, they will not understand our perspective. We will be uh, despised for the fact that we would even bring up Something like that. Well, what do you mean the world's upside down? I think we're kind of heading in the right direction. We're getting better. And they'll list all sorts of reasons. But this general battle against hopelessness is not my own. I've seen so many people struggle with it, and it has pervaded our culture. So while people may say with their mouths, oh, I think we're going to get better, things are better, I think in our hearts and minds, many people today, even among those who do not call upon Christ as Savior. They sense this hopeless feeling and even and distressingly so much of the church. So I have felt 
this hopelessness based on these things. And I'll list them, I believe, in the systemic order that they have flowed forth. I have felt powerless. It seems no matter how much good we say or do, evil continues to prevail. As a result, I have felt anxiety. What can I do more? Oh God, there must be something else that I can do. And I feel anxious about that as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend. That anxiety reaches a point where I just feel angry. Really angry. I get suspicious. I get a critical spirit. That turns to bitterness. And then I just want to curl up in a ball and isolate. Now some people may say, well, Pastor Eric, you're about to do that for about two months. You're just going to curl up and isolate. Well, I am going to isolate to a degree, but it's going to be for completely different reasons. And, and while I have been greatly distressed by the spirit of our cultural t- culture today and how I specifically have responded to it, I- I'm not going into these next 10 weeks with a sense of absolute despair, despondency, or hopelessness. I, I am very, very hopeful about what God will do in and through it for me and then resultingly for you as well. This... Uh, this whole kind of deadly line of progression has combined to rob me of real lasting peace at many times and spiritual rest. As I battle these fleshly responses, I find myself at times discouraged and depleted in spiritual energy. I don't, anybody else feel the same way? Though my head knows and believes the promises of scripture, I'm often tempted to lose hope. So here's my focus for this morning. This has been my focus all week long and really for a long time now as I've looked towards this message and as I've sought the Lord. It's that if we are to be a people of God who share real, lasting hope, we must know the basis for this hope and place our faith and trust in the one who promises our hope. That's the perspective change that I am praying for in my life and in your life. Because if this is not going to be true of us, then we will affect no positive impact upon the culture around us at all. We're meeting in vain. If that doesn't become our focus, Hebrews 11.1 says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, I'm reading from the ESV, the conviction of things not seen. When we talk about hope, and Pastor Andrew prayed this, and I appreciated that prayer, we're not talking about something transient or uh, I'm guessing, uh, oh, I I sure hope that I, you know, that this happens or this good happens. No, this is a firm conviction placed in the truth of God. Faith is the assurance or the substance of the things that we hope for, 
the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. Now to live with real lasting hope, we cannot expect that anything of this world will be able to stand the test. That makes sense, doesn't it? Let's think about it logically. If we're seeking to do something eternal in our lives, how can we start with something that is mortal, fallen, that is decaying? We can't, we can't take material here from the, the dust of the earth to produce something eternal for us. Eternal things have to come from an eternal source. So in order to stand the test, we must know, we must believe, and we must receive the eternal truth of God's word. It is not enough to just do our daily bread. I love it, it's a great resource. And if, that's, if you're a brand new believer and that's where you're starting, that's fine. But folks, we need to progress beyond simple little tools and get into reading our Bibles, loving our Bibles, understanding our Bibles, applying the whole counsel of the Word of God to our lives. This is the only way we will mature in faith and be able to discern truth and be able to last through and stand through the trials that we live in now and are certain to come down the pathway in greater uh, heaviness. So first of all, when we look at a foundation of our hope, we have to turn to Romans chapter seven. Now this may seem very, very strange to many of you. Why would I start here in verse 13 when I wanna talk about hope? Because this seems like the antithesis of hope. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, let's take a quick look at it. Beginning with verse 13, the apostle Paul was led to write this. Chapter 7 of Romans, verse 13. Did that which is good, he's talking about the law, the giving of the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, by defining it, we understand how deadly it is and it becomes more sinful in our perception. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. This is the doctrine of the depravity of man, of the sinful nature of mankind from birth on. For I do not understand, he says, my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Once I understand that my offenses against the law are wrong, I agree that the law is good. I can ignore my disease processes in the physical body as long as I like thinking that I'm healthy, convincing myself that I'm healthy, I'm healthy and strong today. Meanwhile, there may be some disease that is eating away at me. What do I need? I need the law, I need the doctor to give, a clear, under, uh, give me a clear picture of exactly what's going on in my body so that then I can treat it or that he can treat it and I can receive that treatment. Does that make sense? It makes sense to us in, in this world, but for some reason, we don't always view God's word the same way. Verse 17, 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is not Flip Wilson's, the devil made me do it. This is not us deflecting and passing it off. This is the realization that we live in a fallen mortal body that will battle us to the end. We are broken, folks. We're broken. If you don't think you're broken, you're even more broken than you know. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. This is not saying that the body is bad itself. This is saying that the sinful nature that came from the Garden of Eden and is passed down through all the ages from our father Adam is inside of us, every one of us at the root, and it impacts everything else about us. Everything else has come forth from that sinful root. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do, not, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. How, how many of you have felt this way? Oh, Lord, over and over and over, I just can't seem to get victory over this. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. With my spiritual heart and mind, with my soul, I understand I'm offending God, I'm making myself and other people around me miserable by my sinful nature, and I don't want to do this, but my body keeps tempting me, I struggle against it. The flood tides of sin wash over me on a daily basis, and I have to do, I have to be involved in mortal combat against it. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And you can be certain that that's true because you have an enemy who despises you. And he will do and say anything he can to influence you in such a way of taking advantage of your sinful fallen nature to shame you to cause you to become bitter and isolate yourself, to stay out of fellowship with the body of Christ, to stop reading your Bible and praying. He will do whatever he can. Evil lies close at hand. 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then Paul cries out, and can you feel this sense in your spirit? Can you echo this call? Wretched man, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, God, help me. Have mercy on me, the ancients would pray. The breath prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm so tired of this battle against the flesh. Thanks be to God, verse 25. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In other words, I'm entangled in this and I will never get completely free from it until I am free from the mortal body and with the Lord. So this is understanding and accepting our battle with the fleshly nature. If you don't start here, you have the cart before the horse. You will never 
be able to see victory and glory to God if you don't acknowledge the fact that you're broken and you have a daily battle and you need help. Help that ultimately only God can provide, but also community encourages and the word of God feeds and prayer energizes. In the notes of the Reformation Study Bible I read, somehow we think that that our evil deeds reside at the rim or the edge of our character and never penetrate to the core. Basically, it is assumed people are inherently good, but if we lift our gaze to the ultimate standard of goodness, the holy character of God, we realize that what appears to be a basic goodness on an earthly level is corrupt to the core. When we're willing to scripturally and honestly acknowledge our ongoing battle with our sinful nature, we can begin to humbly receive the solution our heavenly Father has provided us in Jesus. Secondly, as we move ahead through this passage of scripture, beginning in chapter eight, verse one, there is no condemnation for those who possess the spirit of God. There is no condemnation for those who possess the Spirit of God. Look at verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see the contrast there? The law of spirit and life against the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, God gave us the standard, but we're never able to fulfill it. There is no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's holy standard is here. We fail at being able to to reach it. So what did God do? He destroyed that power of sin by giving us his holy son. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now this doesn't mean that we never sin, that we don't struggle against sin. We've already established that that's a fact for all of us. It was a fact for the apostle Paul. So this is not... This is not saying that we can lose our salvation or that if you struggle with sin at all, on any level, that you're not really a believer. No, the scripture is not teaching that. It's saying when we make a lifestyle of this, if we can go on and sin and live how we want to and live according to the flesh without any stop signs in front of us, without feeling convicted in our spirit, without being truly sad and broken on the inside, it's evidence that we are not in the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, verse five, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Do you find yourself in a combative nature against God? 
Do you find yourself at your very root wanting to rebel against the truth of God? To find loopholes out of the, the truth of God? That's a very concerning place to be. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the truly lost person. This is the person who is living according to the fleshly nature. I am living according to the spiritual nature and fighting the flesh along the way. That's the difference. As opposed to the person who is living according to the fleshly nature and ignoring the spirit or rebelling against the spirit in every way. You, however, are not in the flesh, verse nine, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, this decaying thing that we live in, this jar of clay, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole theological treatise on this, but you can find this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. God's going to give you a new body. If you're in Jesus, the Spirit of God lives inside of you, you get a brand new body. Kenny's not going to have to deal with uh, foot problems and shoulder problems anymore, and Patty won't have to put up with his shenanigans. Good to have the Copelands here this morning. I, I loved seeing your flyover of the stadium the other day. That was, that was awesome. Thank you, Leanne. But listen, this is the battle that we fight against. But oh my, what a promise there is coming for us. The personal possession of the indwelling Holy Spirit is the proof and power of God against the debilitating, disheartening nature of sin. Holy Spirit, Jesus, assurance of no condemnation. No Holy Spirit is proof that you don't have Jesus. You can say it with your mouth, but the Spirit bears witness inside of us. And if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Jesus, therefore you are under condemnation, which leads to helplessness and hopelessness. But when we are in Christ, we have hope. We have hope. Third, we're adopted heirs of God, and this is such good news. I don't know what kind of family you came from. All of us have broken things in our families to one degree or another. Some of you come from family situations that I can't begin to imagine, and I won't presume to say, oh, I understand. Some of you come from deeply broken, hurtful places in your family life, and I would never make light of those things. Certainly, it's a challenge to you. It's a heartache to you. And it can even cause there to be an even greater hook for the enemy in your flesh to try to bring you down. But here, no matter where you come from, who you are, what you've done, you can be in Christ and are an adopted heir of God Almighty. You're a child of God. Now, that gets thrown around all the time. I'm a child of God. 
Are you really a child of God? If you are truly a child of God, through Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you are a full-blown heir of all the good things that we have in Christ Jesus. God, who gave his only son for us, won't he give us every good thing in Christ? That's what we're told. That's what we're told. So beginning in verse 12, so then, brothers and sisters, we're debtors. Oh, we don't like that word. But it goes on to say, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If the flesh nature is your nature, your whole nature, you will die in condemnation. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, you have the capacity, the holy, divine, eternal capacity inside of you to do battle against the flesh. That's an evidence of being saved by the Lord Jesus and being adopted into the family of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, the enemy will attack us at a psychological level in this area, and he is specialized in bringing all sorts of influences to do battle against your mind and to give you negative thought processes depression, harmful thoughts towards self, and maybe others as well. This is what he longs to do, is to bring death and destruction, to steal, to kill and destroy any health from your life mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So we need to retrain our minds in this truth, that you are in Christ an heir of Almighty God. You are his kid. He loves you. He will never leave you or forsake you. You can cast your every care on him. You can come to him at all times, in every moment of the day or the night, and he will always hear you. You may not always sense that there's some great breakthrough in the clouds, but the Holy Spirit of God, it says here, bears witness with our spirit that we are his children, and what a comfort that brings to be held in his arms, to rest in his presence, the one who never slumbers or sleeps, whose eye is on us, whose mercies are new every morning, great is his faithfulness to us. Glory to God. When we begin to understand and believe our everlasting and unconditionally loving relationship as a literal child of God, we begin to see the world we begin to see our flesh and the devil with clear spiritual eyes. In other words, we can say like the kid on the playground who's being bullied, my dad is bigger and stronger and smarter and better than your dad. Now, we don't come off with that kind of an attitude because we never presume to stand up against the devil in our own strength. But we can say, oh, Father, Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And the blood of Christ protects me and washes over me and seals me. And nothing can touch me outside of God's sovereign will. And I can trust him. 
I'm safe in him. No matter what comes, it could be painful things and often is. This is not a remedy for every painful circumstance of life. This is, that's the stuff of life. We're often told in scripture that we will suffer with Christ because we are going against the grain of fallen culture. And when you do that, culture hates you and they will battle you. And the devil hates you and he will battle you on every front. And your flesh fights against the nature of God. So these things conspire, but we have confidence in the Lord Jesus because we are one of God's children and he will never let us go. I'm God's kid. I am not a slave of Satan anymore. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God lives in you and bears witness, you can say, I am God's kid. I am not a slave of Satan. And you can tell that to his face. I can choose to live in kingdom truth. Fourth, we have the promise of glory. The promise of glory. Oh, what a vision is set before us. We all know the feeling of being able to forbear whatever difficult circumstances or tasks we have in the current because we're looking forward to that grand vacation or a time of rest. It might simply be something as simple as Friday night. Oh, praise God, Friday night's coming. I got through this week by the grace of God. God's going to give me a rest now. Or whatever day off that you can get. It might be that simple. But there's something far grander on the horizon for us who are children of God. In verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It was made perfect on the day of creation. God said, it is very good. And yet, because of sin that entered into it, fractures began to instantly take place in the whole created order of things. And if we don't understand that in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, then once again, we've got the cart before the horse. We're not understanding. Our worldview is skewed if we don't understand this. All of creation is broken. Why do we have these massive, terrible, killer storms? Why do we have earthquakes? Why do we have floods like our dear brother Arup in India who's asking for prayer for the churches in that area around Bangalore where he lives? Flooding nature is, is just outside of its boundaries. Why? Because sin has corrupted all of creation. but one day it will be set free from its own bondage. God is doing all of this in, in us as his children of God, and he's going to do it and is doing it in creation as well. 
For we know that the whole creation, verse 22, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. I want this body to be redeemed. I'm tired of dragging around the ball and chain of my sinful flesh. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's the truth of Hebrews 11.1 1 that we talked about earlier. It's substantial, it's evidential. Likewise, in the same way, in other words, the Spirit helps us. Not just creation, but it helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever reached a point in your life where you're so broken, so dismayed, so feel so hopeless and powerless that all you can do is sit before the Lord exhausted and you don't even know how to pray? But you turn your heart and your mind up and your soul up to the Lord. You just look to God, just to look to God sometimes in faith. A look of faith, no matter how weak it may be, and we can sense the ministering spirit of God coming to us and pouring a healing balm over our souls and giving us encouragement, and we get a peace that surpasses all human understanding. It makes no sense, and yet he gives it. And he who searches hearts, verse 27, knows what is the mind of the spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Not our will, His will. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And it goes on to say, for those who are called according to His purpose. You can't just say, oh, I want to be a Christian because all things are going to work out for good. Oh, we love that, verse 28. All things work together for good to those who are, what does it say? Who love God, that's it. That's what we, oh, I love God, but it, it's kind of an intellectual assent. It's so much more than that. Those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be shaped, to be molded, to be chiseled, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is the firstborn. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, what? Say it again. He glorifies us. Why? Because we are sealed in this line that is holy and eternal. And it starts from God. It's initiated by God. It's controlled by God. It's empowered by God. It's held by God. It's not held by you. Thank God. Because none of us is strong enough to keep ourselves. But God is more than powerful enough to hold his own children in security. And so we will be glorified. It's certain. Every child of God. You might want to jot down John 16, as a reference. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jot down Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, and read those for yourself. 
Those verses will give you an honest assessment of having to struggle and suffer for the Lord Jesus, as we said before, but to come out on top because you are held in him, not by yourself or anyone else. When we begin driving ahead, in other words, fixing our clear gaze upon the reality of our future. Did did your driving instructor talk to you about driving ahead? When I took driving lessons as a 16-year-old and I was in the driving uh, the car the, that uh, that teacher took me out in, he said, don't look down right in front of you. Look out ahead. My dad taught me that as well. He said, put your hands on the wheel. And he said, a sure sign of people who are not driving ahead is that they're constantly overcorrecting. Do you drive that way? Constantly doing this every, all the time, moving the wheel all the time. If that's you, if you drive your car that way, and more importantly, if you drive your life that way, it's proof that you are not looking out ahead. You are not driving ahead. Fix your gaze on the reality of our future. We're far more able to view the world and all our difficult circumstances through the lens of faith, providing us overwhelming hope. Overwhelming hope. And finally, we are in the eternal grasp of Jesus. We might have all sorts of questions about what heaven looks like. What's going to really happen in heaven? What am I going to do? Am I going to sit on hard church pews for eternity and, and sing hymns? And, and, or is God going to make me an acolyte and I just light candles all the time? Or uh, What's heaven going to look like? Is it going to be a really boring place? No. It's far, far more than that. To be in the eternal grasp of Jesus is to have assurance of something that is greater than anything our minds can begin to conceive. And it will be filled with eternal, holy activity where we never get tired We never get discouraged. We are never without the proper resources for whatever task we are given. And we rejoice in it. And we fellowship. And we praise. And we know we are home. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, finish it. Who who can be against us? If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things that we need? In other words, is inferred here. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And Hebrews chapter six clearly, or four clearly tells us that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And oh my goodness, I wonder how many of those Afghan brothers and sisters have been quoting this verse and thinking on this verse and praying through this verse. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, spiritual powers in the heavenlies, 
demonic powers, worldly powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and then glorified. Is it any wonder that nothing can overcome the God who holds us in his hands? Nothing and no one can separate you and me from his secure love. No politician, no president, no party platform, no plans of evil men, no pandemic. Nothing can separate me from God and his plan for my life. No matter what or who comes into my life, I am 100%, not 99.99999, no, 100% assured that my eternal home in heaven is certain because of my faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for my sins, was buried and rose again. The sinless one, the God-man, who offered his life as a substitute for me and for you. When I receive that gift of God, his eternal life comes into me, I'm instantly made a new creature, and the old is going away, and the new is coming on, and I'm being continuously purified and sanctified until one day all the brightness of God's glory will be all that is seen of me. No more of the fallen, sinful flesh. No more of the entanglements and the stench of the world. I'll be free. If that doesn't give you hope to share, you're going to find nothing better. So, our assurance and our commitment to our hope. There's a battle. We talked about it. What's your prayer? Have a contrite, repentant spirit. You might want to jot that down. My prayer, because of the battle of the flesh... And with the flesh is that I need to have a continuously contrite and repentant spirit. Come humbly before God with a true sorrow for your waywardness and lean on God to bring forgiveness in your life. Secondly, there's no condemnation. No condemnation, those first couple verses of chapter 8. What's your prayer for that? Thank you. It's thanksgiving. I'm not condemned. I don't have to go to hell. I'm not going to have to pay the price of my own sin. Thank you, God. Second, or third, I'm adopted. I'm an heir of God. I'm his kid. What's my prayer? Rededicate myself to that truth. Sometimes we just have to remember who our family is. Who's your daddy? Glory. What's my prayer? Wonder and praise. Wonder and, oh God, I glorify you. I stand in wonderment at your majesty, at your power, at your holiness, at your perfect justice. God, your creative power. I stand in wonder and I praise you, God, for all that you are and all that you have done. And lastly, my security. And my prayer is a hopefulness in trust. Oh God, today I'm severely tried. I'm sad. I'm broken. 
There are a lot of bad things that are happening right now, and I am tempted to feel anxious and hopeless about this or to be angry or whatever. But God, I choose to come to you and with hope in my heart because of the vision that is set before me and the empowerment of Christ within me and his Holy Spirit, I am going to trust you. Now, it takes the knowledge of the Word of God and faith and trust in the promises of Scripture for you to be able to pray that way. So our application is this. Know who you are in Jesus Christ. Who are you really? Are you in Christ? Is the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you? Do you sense agreement with Scripture, with worship, with fellowship, with truth? Second, choose to live as one of God's kids. Don't choose to live as somebody else's family member. Live according to the rules of your Father in heaven. Third, trust God to provide your needs. Quit scrabbling about trying to fulfill all your needs yourself. That always ends in a bad result or less than good. Trust God to provide your needs. Fourth, joyfully live with a steady eye on eternity. Back when I trusted Christ as Savior, there were many, many messages on the coming of Christ. We don't hear very many of those messages in, in, uh, in most of our circles today because we're so, and rightly so, focused on living rightly in this world so that other people can, can see Christ and trust Christ. But let us not forget to keep our eye on the eastern sky. Christ is coming back. He will come in the clouds of glory and a trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first, and then those of us who remain will be taken up together to be with them, and thus shall we ever be with the Lord. And there is security. Pray for daily opportunities to shine and share your hope. People around you, folks, they're desperate for real hope. There are desperate people all around us. When you go out to lunch today, you're going to be surrounded by desperate servers, desperate managers, desperate attendants, desperate neighbors, desperate children. Live as a people of hope. Share your hope. We have the only hope worth sharing. Father, thank you. We love you. We praise you. We are so grateful for the assurances that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, for the promises that are ours, for the spirit who indwells us, for the hope of heaven that is ours certainly. May we live according to your Holy Spirit and not the flesh. And may we share this wondrous hope with everyone around us. For this we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.